This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is August 24th, 2023. I'm Scott Lunderbone. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, it's a it's a vacation, summer vacation episode. We're going to go visit some lakes, just they happen to be on fire. We're going to have a little retreat uh, and talk about all the things you can't afford and how we're not actually going to do anything about it because it's summer. Well, I mean, thankfully, the it's only the area around the lakes, and like water has not decided to spontaneously combust, but uh, still bad. And and the travel restrictions have just been lifted. I just checked my email as of midnight tonight, when Thursday, whatever day it is, the twenty fourth. The travel restrictions that came in after we recorded the last show and before are already being lifted. So that's great. Support our travel plans. Patreon dot com slash Politicoast. Let's start with Evie's trial by fire. This has been this has been a bit of a week since we recorded our last episode. Um, the Okanagan almost burned down; a big chunk of it definitely did. And now the shoe swap is on fire. Yes, yeah. a lot has happened in terms of uh, dealing with the ongoing emergency in that case. Like you said, this has pretty much all happened in the week since we recorded. Um, but yeah, large parts of uh, the interior were put under uh, travel restrictions, evacuation orders as crews had to battle fires. Yeah, there's still a lot of people under evacuation orders, both in the Okanagan, also in the Northwest Territories. I don't believe Yellowknife has been allowed to return yet. Um, I haven't been following that as closely. And we're the BC Politics Podcast. Go check out Cabin Radio. I hear they're really good for coverage of the Yellowknife situation. But in the Okanagan and Interior, these fires have been intense. And, you know, they got closer to Kelowna than I think we've seen fires in a long time. There was something around 180 structures were destroyed. Thankfully, not more. But that's still a lot of property loss for people who are going to be eventually able to return and the sights and sounds of, you know, the vacation tourist destination of our province effectively. Like I was there three weeks ago and it was great. And now it's all covered in ash and everyone is terrified. And thankfully, like we said, they're getting those under control. Things are still ongoing in the shoe swap further up North, not that far North, but North of the Okanagan and things are more tense there. So the situation seemed to evolve fairly predictably in a way in the Okanagan, like evacuation orders were issued, people uh, got out it's safely. Kind of a on how yeah. this play out. Yeah, it's not great, but it was all kind of in order. People did their fundraising requests and so forth. Things in the shoe swap seem to have been kind of a shit show. Uh, there was allegations the province wasn't moving fast enough there, uh, criticism over how the fire crews were starting to deal with uh, predictions and wind changes that ended up making the fires much worse there. Uh, a couple days ago, BC United Caucus released a press release saying 
the province is blocking the supply of critical goods and supplies to those trying to protect the area, including fuel to run generators. Uh, I'm not even sure the full story there. All I found was their press release. Yeah, a little more context would have been helpful on that one. I, yeah, I did I'm look. similarly not entirely sure what's being referred to there. And all of this is amid a region that's got a very strong anti-government feel these days, right? There is kind of core pockets of the like convoy adjacent attitudes in this country and parts of that rural uh, interior are definitely hot with that. And so, there is an element there that I was kind of wondering in the back of my mind and hoping it wouldn't come out even though I expected it of, well, we just got through COVID and we saw the government mandates there and they have lifted all of them since. But there was such a strong anti-lockdown push that, you know, evacuation orders are and travel restrictions are another form of mandate and lockdown. When are the protests going to come? And here they have come and we are now getting stories out about crews having, fire crews having to pull out because people, protesters are like overwhelming RCMP blockades saying they should be able to drive whatever road they want. That's not how the motor roads work, but I get the frustration. <laughs> yeah, it even got to the point where uh, people started trying to organize a convoy to go to these uh, blockades and take them down. It's... Yeah, it's it's not great. And it's kind of one of the uh, lingering knock-on effects of the pandemic has been this uh, erosion of public trust, like presumption of ill will. I'm not even entirely sure how to frame it, but uh, COVID broke a lot of brains and... Uh, in this particular cohort, that's how it's manifesting. Yeah, like I'm, I'm pretty sure under any previous circumstance, there was always going to be some portion in a evacuation order that was going to refuse. And that is really frustrating for fire crews to deal with because there is this still kind of onus on public safety officials to save people who are in danger, even if it's their own fault in many ways. Before the recording, I kind of mentioned the, you know, ill-fated um, Titanic sub situation. Uh, this being a little bit different because the crews that might have to save people need to be focused on stopping the fires. And I'm not one to say, like, let them burn. I think, like, I, I get where that feeling comes from, but it's callous as fuck. Well, it's more of the, like, if you ignore the very clear evacuation orders, eh, maybe maybe the priority isn't to save you from your bad decisions. It's to stop the fire from spreading to and hurting everyone else. Like, it's, yeah, you know, there are finite firefighting resources mm -hmm. in that case. It's case of prioritization, and I wouldn't think that prioritization is wrong by any means. I think one of the extra challenges we have now, as you mentioned, is post-pandemic, there's been such a shift in mindset in so many ways in different communities. And there has been a networking effect of that more like, I won't do what you tell me extremism and through social media and everything else. And I'm not going to say that the lack of news on Facebook is making anything better or worse 
uh, people have definitely found their ways around that by screenshotting and otherwise describing the news. So, but social media is definitely like warped our brains in many other ways. And now we have like that extra level of disgruntled, you know, you can't tell me what to do mixed in with a, I found my people who are in the same situation and we're going to like collectively defend ourselves from the firefighters or from the fires. And one of the things that's come up specifically is there were a series of reports of firefighting equipment being stolen from fire crews. And what seems to be the case now, because they have interviewed people uh, involved in this, is they're not stealing it. Their defense is they are borrowing it because they are not being given the equipment they need to fight the fires that are threatening their property. Yeah, that, that's that's just theft. Like, you don't get to borrow something without asking permission. That's just called stealing. I, I love the idea, though, that you're simultaneously going to stay and defend your property, but then and not let the government tell you to leave, but then also expect the government to give you free shit to defend your property with. Oh yeah, no, it's completely incoherent. Um, you know, it'd be one thing if these guys were like entirely, you know, the prepper types who had gone, you know, all in and be like, "Yeah, we're living in the PC uh, woods. This, this fires are a normal thing. Let's actually be in." be fully self-sufficient on this, eh, you know, then I could, I can at least understand the impulse there. But yeah, no, if you have to like, go out and steal fire equipment, yeah, no, that's just crazy all around. And dangerous. And it's putting lives at risk, you know, between that, between, and, you know, going after blockades to try to open up roads again. It's a, it's a next level of worrying in terms of how the politics of this province, this country continent is going in many ways yeah it's not great I, I do think like in the long term you know over the next couple of years we'll probably course correct a bit on this I, I don't know the last couple pandemics tend to be fairly you know beyond just generally traumatic events they tend to bring out a lot of like weird stuff like if you like some of the stuff that happened in the like 1918 pandemic was had definitely reflections of these past few years, and yeah, that eventually subsided. And I suspect that uh, it'll probably be the same here, but uh, it's going to be a rocky few years while that happens. Scott, post-1918 pandemic, some countries didn't go very well in this world. And I'm not going to say it was directly tied to the pandemic, but like in those years after, there was some... Uh, rocky is not the right word for it, but uh, dark times for like half of Europe. Well, that was more like the uh, couple decades later. Not really like tapped. But, you know, there were places in the U.S. that uh, had the same like masking fights that we ended up having this last round. And yeah, then turned in the roaring 20s and it was great. But like, it, it takes a little while to, to get the stuff out of the system. And as we're seeing here, while that goes on, it is not great. Yeah, uh, politicians are, I think, still trying to struggle to figure out where to position themselves on this. David Eby was doing his standard, you know, what a polit what the premier should do, like tour the affected communities, talk to people in, like near but not in the way of firefighters, obviously. Um, but you know, so he was in Kamloops and Tecumloops and. Uh, going through some of the evacuation camps. I saw initially some of his trips through the shoe swap were canceled, so I don't know exactly what he made it to and what he didn't. 
Uh, but, you know, he had standard comments around community cooperation, coming together, the things you say, like, like you said earlier, going back to the script of how an emergency kind of plays out. I, so I don't, you know, I don't have any strong opinions on how he played this. Uh, we talked about the BC United Caucus statement around the critical supplies being interrupted. Again, more news there would be great. Uh, I did try and pull through some different sources and I didn't find anything. Uh, and then on the other side, we have John Rustad, who's just been tweeting out videos of himself, uh, the leader of the conservative parties, and he has a take. His tweet says, and it kind of sums up the four-minute video attached to it, government needs to work with, not against citizens who want to help fires and protect their property. I strongly encourage people to obey evacuation orders, but as a British Columbian, you deserve the right to stay and protect your home if you choose to do so. And And he was condemned for this comment by the premier who said he shouldn't people shouldn't be uh, encouraging people to stay home, which he's not technically doing, but it, it is one of those ways where he's like recognizing like that libertarian urge to sit on that, sit on your property and defend it. And it's, it's weighing in on a messy situation where people are doing crime. <laughs> As we mentioned. It's not, I think it's more than just like a libertarian thing. I think it's probably also just like a bit of a rural thing too. You know, if you're living in a very rural area, you tend to have to develop a certain amount of self-sufficiency just because you don't get all the uh, services that you get in a city like Vancouver or Victoria or Kamloops, Kelowna, any of those. It's like that, that does, I think, kind of seep in a bit. And maybe not like ideological libertarianism. It's more just kind of a almost way of life, more like. But uh, yeah, like we said, it uh, has some downstream effects that aren't great. But uh, yeah, I think it's. I don't think it's particularly ideological in a sense. I mean, it does fit with the ideology of the Conservative Party, though. Yeah, to an extent, but. Like, of the I Conservative think Party of BC. Yeah. So there's all of those angles. The only other angle that I think is worth coming back to in the future, or at least keeping an eye on, is how we look back on this year of like record-setting fires and trying to piece together like what went right, what went wrong. I've seen some discussion of previous um reports into wildfire prevention and mitigation and criticism that perhaps we hadn't been doing enough. Uh, I'll be looking for those kind of stories and just trying to figure out like, what do we need to do going forward to make sure that when wildfires do happen, because they are natural uh, and not, not started by arson for obvious shouldn't need to be said. Uh, they're also not started by space lasers <laughs> generally. But how do we make uh, I think sure there are more arsons than space lasers? Yeah. Although they're... I suppose space lasers would be a subset of arson. <laughs> Depends if it's intentional or not. <laughs> I guess the the key key thing to bring it back though is how do we make sure when wildfires start they don't get out of control and threaten uh, communities? And you know this ties in. I saw a couple stories in BC Today this week around. Uh, the challenges of insurance and natural disaster and flood insurance that many communities are looking at, including merit. And it's, 
you know, this broader question of long term, are some of these communities going to be habitable, to put it frankly? And those aren't going to be easy questions, especially, you know, maybe we're not losing whole communities, but maybe, you know, large industries or agriculture in different ways has to move. And how are we going to mitigate that? But that's a that's a conversation yeah. to have after the fires are out, at least for yeah. It throws the insurance markets into chaos too, because you know insurance is based on statistics and actuarial tables, and when your base rates are changing significantly, it is pretty hard to figure out how you price stuff, and like insurance companies tend to take a big step back when there's that much uncertainty around everything. So it uh, has some downstream effects because you can't get insurance. A whole lot of other things break down as well. Well, speaking of breaking down, uh, the housing market is still terrible. And coming out of the cabinet retreat this week in the federal government, uh, Trudeau met with his new ministers out in Charlatan, PEI. He comes out with a message to millennials saying, you know, we understand that life is expensive. We're going to make it better. We don't know how yet. Yeah, the trust us, we've got this message that uh, falls increasingly flat the uh, longer the government's around. Yeah, they're like their only saving grace right now is they control the timeline. Like they need to do something and time is running out. There is a finite uh, life to this government and maybe the NDP goes wild and decides to pull an election earlier, but I would be shocked if that happens. So really it's Trudeau's decision when to go to the polls. And if he wants to take a couple more months to slowly trickle out announcements, I guess he can. It's just... Things are still it's getting like, expensive in the meantime. Yeah, and, and like, um, it's easy for us who, you know, live and breathe this stuff and pay attention almost to an unhealthy level about the uh, ins and outs of all of this stuff to, you know, see an announcement and that, you know, factor into our thinking and go from there. But for a large amount of people, stuff takes time to trickle out it, over long periods of time, like, perceptions and ideas get set in and yeah sure he has time if the goal is to figure out an announcement to make before the next election and then start trying to implement that yeah he has a fair bit of control over that but uh what happens in the meantime is perceptions can get locked in and you know between the the whole housing's not a federal responsibility thing uh, from a few weeks ago to now the big headlines coming out of this cabinet retreat are no new housing measures. It starts to compound a bit, and this is building off of you know very real frustration and sense that nothing is improving and that the housing situation is bad and sticky in a bad way. That can all add up and just take a toll on a government, and particularly a government like at this point in the poll or at this point in the cycle where it becomes pretty hard in year eight to radically change course and 
start to regain popularity. You can, you know, make the alternative less appealing, but it is very hard to become better light than you are right now at year eight. I think the advantages they have right now, like what they're kind of doing is playing that traditional media game of it's summer, no one's really paying attention. So if we announce anything right now, it'll just be ignored because everyone's at the cottages they can't afford that are also on fire. And so there's a little bit of, I think, that kind of old school thinking to it. And I'm not as convinced that's as applicable as it used to be. It's the same thing that, you know, used to be that Friday afternoons were the time you put out everything. And that's still a case to a certain extent. But, you know, everyone has a smartphone these days and people, you know, consume their media in a much more kind of all over the place way. And yeah, there's less attention paid this time of year than, uh, you know, in spring and fall or winter. But it's not zero, and they still got a raft of bad headlines that could have been avoided, even if they had something concrete to announce, however small and like one part of the planet was. But none of those bad headlines got shared on Facebook, Scott. So maybe that's their win, and they're going to solve that whole kerfuffle and then announce a bunch of good things. And that'll be just like Facebook's just going to be great news from the liberals for three months to the end of the year. But have you met the Trudeau? Drummer? No, I don't think they're that competent. Like more realistically, I think like this has the feelings of a plan. I don't know if it's a great plan, and it's definitely not like the plan I like because, as you mentioned, you know, like there's an urgency that's missing here. But we have an, a radically different cabinet. Like many jobs changed hands in a way that I think allows for the possibility of some air to be or fresh air to be seen in that space there's they're recognizing the messages they need to make they're not matching them with policy yet but there is time to bring that when parliament returns and they can just start dropping bills as soon as the house returns and people don't like Pierre polyev I mean, they don't like Trudeau either but yeah i mean Pierre polyev definitely has a bunch of negatives and we'll get into the uh the polling in a bit, but um, just on that, like I, part of the Trudeau negatives is a perception that it's a lot of um, announcements, fluff, and whatnot, and the the actual like on the ground stuff doesn't change, and I think this may play into it. Uh, but anyway, what does the polling say? I just, th- this is like the least important number in here, but I just noticed this from Abacus Data. This is a poll on Polyev that came out on the 21st. 15% of Canadians don't know who Elizabeth May is. I mean, 18% don't know who Maxine Bernier is. Elizabeth May has been around for 15 years at this point. I'm not looking up the date. I think that's close enough. But like, she is the longest serving leader of anyone in this list. Yeah, even with that hiatus. And uh, another 50% have only heard about them, but don't know much about them. How? How? Like I said, most people don't uh, live and breathe this stuff I, the way I we guess do. there are there are a bunch of young people as well who are getting pulled these days who probably don't remember her like her the peak of her success. Anyway, uh, three seats. Yeah, pretty much everyone t- has heard of Justin Trudeau. With I'm really curious, like the thick little bit that's the never heard of them. 
it is too small for them to actually put a number on there, but it's still on the chart. And I am just very curious who the never heard of Justin Trudeau people who get polled in these are. Uh, 91% of Canadians know him pretty well or know him very well, as opposed to for Jugmeet Singh, it's only, what is that, 54% or something like that. I can't do math anymore. 35, Jesus. Anyway, yeah. Um, 10% haven't heard of Pierre Pauliet. And 35% have basically only heard the name, but don't know much about him. Like Jugmeet Singh, uh, 6% haven't heard of him. And let's say 70% know at least something about him. Um, in terms of positive negatives, Polyev is more polarizing than either of the previous conservative leaders at the same point in their tenure. And this is a really interesting thing uh, Abacus did here. Uh, more people have ideas of who Polyev is than O'Toole or Shear. Like 20% of people didn't know who Shear was at this point, and only 7% were very positive about him. Only 5% were very positive about O'Toole, and 13% are very positive about Polyev. So he has a stronger core than either of his previous. But uh, he also has a stronger negative with uh, that very really don't like him going from 13 for Sheer, 19 for O'Toole, and 23 for Polyev. Uh, the net impression, the positives minus the negatives, Sheer was a minus 4, O'Toole a minus 17, Polyev a minus 6. So they're all kind of in the same realm with O'Toole being pretty sharply, no one liked him. The O'Toole one's a little baffling. I mean, it's not, he, is it, a bit of a... Who in the party say, was but, happy? But like, she, yeah, I, I just, the O'Toole one's weird because, I don't know, O'Toole is one of these people who like 10 years from now, all the progressives are going to say, why can't conservatives be more like O'Toole was. I would already say that. Yeah. And yet on here, he was the one with like the strongest uh, net negatives, which is weird. Well, but. And I don't get, like, so O'Toole, no, yeah. Anyone in the liberals and NDP in this point is not going to rate a conservative leader positively. And so you are left with their base and the undecideds and O'Toole was fighting uh, a battle in his party the entire time he was leader. So the challenge for Polyev is he's got pretty strong negatives. He's got some positives like, they do compare the other party leaders. Trudeau, for example, has about 30% who are net, who are positive on him versus like, what is that for 52% uh, who are, or 51% are negative on him. Singh has uh, 36% positive versus like 31% negative. So Singh is one of the few who has consistently sat with a net positive, but it's never a like strong positive. Polyev has the highest very positive. He also, uh, Trudeau has the highest very negative. Elizabeth May is the most ambivalent feeling leader. It's too bad for the other guy who is co-leading the... Who? Exactly. No, I, I'm actually, like, I cannot remember. Jonathan Pitano, I want to say something like that. Maybe? I don't know. Not that neither of us should really remember. Kind of tells you everything you need to know about that though yeah yeah um <clears throat> yeah 338 also had a, a breakdown based off some uh angels read polling and 
in there, the uh, Trudeau and Polyev both had the same net uh, negative sits team on the uh, favorable. So it's really going to be a question like who is the most unlikable of the two. It's going to be uh, kind of interesting to see which one ends up pan out. But uh, Pierre Polyev definitely has a uh, lot of rough edges to sand off. And I don't know, we'll, we'll have to see in a couple months how good that uh, rebranding effort's going to be on it. But uh, I think the only thing he has going for him is the uh, his main opponent is almost as unlikable as he is. Well, he just has to get through the conservative uh, policy convention, which I believe is next weekend, and is always the fun chance of seeing what wackadoodle, socially regressive policies make it to the floor and get debated and embarrass the party in the same way that, like, the more the crazier NDP stuff. Yeah, gets that stuff through. doesn't usually get to the floor because of the party, and also like. The, 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 usually the, will keep the, the, the quote-unquote well. crazy NDP stuff is like, hey, we should take a stronger stance on Israel. The conservative stuff is like, hey, what if we like ban trans-affirming surgery for kids? I'm pretty sure there are a few like nuttier things than just taking a stronger stand on Israel that at least got floated but didn't. But the party wisely didn't make it let it get to the floor. They usually don't end up in people dying. At least the. To come back to a different poll, there was one we were making fun of in the Slack from Leger uh, from August 20th that asked, which level of government do you assign the most blame to when it comes to the housing crisis? 40% said federal, 32% said provincial, and 6% said municipal with 22% unsure. And, you know, we all had fun mocking this because of the limited power the federal government has in housing that we've talked about this on the past. But... The way I'm thinking about this right now is that it really does come back to this perception issue that the federal government is facing is like, they have to do something. Like, even if the people are wrong, you can't just tell them they're wrong and expect that is enough for them to go, oh, right, it's not Justin Trudeau's fault, I can't afford a home. It's Ken Sims. Yeah, the, the, the constitutionalist me is like really annoyed by this poll. And if anything, those not that sequence should be flipped with municipalities followed by provinces getting the lion's share of the blame. Like I, but, I can make um, the argument that in the over the long term, the federal government's you know retrenchment from housing over the last thirty years has had a significant impact on the market where they've not built to the same level they were doing in the sixties, seventies, and even eighties, and. That's a similar argument I can make for the provincial government, but like in terms of what who needs to be doing a lot more quickly, let's flip those numbers. Yeah, and to an extent, yeah, some more federal funding would have helped, particularly at the uh, lower end of the market and for non-market housing. But non-market housing still has to run the same gauntlet that market housing does. Uh, in terms of getting approvals, dealing with zoning and all of that stuff. And you know, while more dollars would have helped, those dollars don't go as far when the municipalities are messing everything up as they have been doing for decades on this thing. So really, it's like the municipalities that are doing a huge amount of the 
things that are making the housing market entirely dysfunctional. And, you know, the, the feds have a role to uh, you know, help a little funding here and there, but uh, it, fundamentally, this is a provincial municipal issue, and those are the people who should be doing the lion's share of the work on this. Uh, but regardless, as a political matter, yeah, it just highlights the fact that uh, Trudeau's it's not primarily a federal responsibility thing. Well, you know, technically true under the Constitution is politically failing to read the moment. It's like if they came out at the start of the pandemic and said, well, healthcare is a provincial issue. So go talk to Doug Ford and uh, John Horgan and David Eby now and have them deal with it. And obviously that wasn't going to fly. So, like the federal government can untie so much money that they need to step up and really make that difference. The other thing they are getting flagged on, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, is this question of are their immigration targets being entirely mismatched from their housing targets? And this is going to be an increasing conversation until we can build the housing that we obviously need for both the people who live here and the people who want to live here. One of the things... I'm not even sure it's the housing target. I think it's more the uh, housing policy. Yeah, fair. You know, as we were saying, the uh, liberals have this bad problem of talking a lot about stuff and then not actually doing any of the uncomfortable hard stuff to turn that into reality. So one of the policies that's come under scrutiny is our approach to international student visas because immigration is one of these things that the federal government does have control over directly and it you know it plays on the demand side and i don't think either of us pick that as the number one thing to usually do on housing but this raises a very fascinating realm of policy because as you look at post secondary education over the past several decades there has been a marked shift by university administrations to dramatically ramp up the number of international students in colleges and universities in this country, even as domestic student numbers have kind of flatlined relative. And so, there is a lot of demand in very specific markets, particularly in, I would say, the mid-sized towns in Ontario, your Markhams, your uh, uh, Hamiltons, Kingstons, these places that have a moderate-sized university or some of the new private colleges that Ontario has been pushing ahead that also have been facing flatlining budgets from the government and therefore they need to make up revenue. And lo and behold, they can charge international students much more than they can charge domestics. So they have a cash cow and they have been milking that more and more in an unhealthy way for the local, you know, service and housing market for, I'm not sure it's necessary. Well, it is, like you said, disconnected from some of the other policies that are in place. Like at a broad level, I mean, it's economically not all that different than, you know, being any other export uh, type industry. It's just we're exporting knowledge to uh, international markets rather than uh, physical goods. But same sort of thing. You need. yeah, infrastructure and stuff to support it. This case, housing rather than uh, ports and rail lines and the like. But 
you know, at a, at a very broad level, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, the problem is we're not actually aligning stuff to work well. And, um, you know, if this is the sort of thing that brings in additional money to Canada and we basically export knowledge as a result, then that, that should actually be fine. It's The problem is that none of the other policies are really connected well to that, particularly at the housing level, because primarily municipalities, but also provinces have not structured their policies to actually expand the housing and have enough elasticity in that to actually take in all these uh, people coming here to gain education. I do think at the institutional level, an over-reliance on funding your university in this way can warp the purpose of a university. So I think there can be, but that's a separate issue that, you know, we don't need to dig into. In terms of aligning issues, I mean, on the broader question, I don't disagree with your framing. I would just say that it's important to recognize that I think a lot of people who do come to Canada for study are inter- would possibly be interested in staying here. But you hear countless stories of, but we can't afford to because of the housing situation, among others. So it's not just about exporting knowledge. It's also about importing smart people, I guess, in a very crass way to put it. We like both. Yeah. So, like, I'm very in favor of this kind of situation other than, like, some of the exploitative uh, funding schemes around it. But in terms of what do we do, we've I've seen kind of two proposals put out. The one that the housing minister, Sean Fraser is talking about, and I think comes up mostly is just a hard cap on international students. And you do that either very quickly or, you know, in some way that maybe you hit the private colleges more than the public ones so that the political blowback isn't as strong because who cares about the, you know, for-profit possible diploma mills that are out there. I mean, anyone can make the argument that they're valuable too, but politically, I think it'll be much better for the government to hurt, you know, a college that no one's ever heard of versus UBC. The other policy that I saw come out was floated by Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, and that's to require that post-secondary institutions tie their international student visa requests to uh, campus housing targets, and that they actually develop on-campus plans for how they will house people. And that I found to be quite an interesting approach to this that says, you know, we are okay with international students, provided you start to account for some of the externalities. Yeah, I mean, that does does help things a bit. It's not as fast. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely not as fast. And that's, I think, why there's the liberals have kind of taken on more of the, well, put a cap on it or hinting at that and uh you know this being the uh dam breaking of the we're not going to touch anything with immigration uh to address housing affordability uh that is now no longer the case uh, and i think it is probably the fact that it can be done fairly quickly that's uh leading them to that uh also i mean international students don't vote uh, unlike uh the people in the various municipalities where all the housing would actually have to be built. So there is a bit of a political economy aspect uh, to it too. I mean, we've also seen the, Trudeau yeah. come out and say like repeatedly, 
uh, on this specific issue, I've seen at least one or two headlines talk where he is talking about the need to not demonize immigrants, whether they're international students or anything, kind of coming back to both the important multicultural value that I ascribe to, but also just kind of the liberal rhetoric that we're not surprised to see. Yeah, it's that that bit's very consistent with their brand position. Um, so tailing back international students, a little less so, um, but it's you know, maybe the first time they've actually seen the, that they're responding to the political winds on this. Um, as to the NDP's proposal, I mean, it's fine. It still strikes me as the second best option to actually just you know let the market work. And you know, if an international student wants to live, uh, you know, on the economy, so to speak, rather than in campus housing, yeah, I think they should be able to. Uh, and to do that, let's actually get the uh, economy housing actually working. Well, let's jump over to quick takes. And while we're talking about housing, uh, here in BC, the housing minister is has just done an interview with Mike Howell talking about a situation here in Vancouver where the city is trying to look at purchasing and redeveloping a number of single residence occupancy hotels for redevelopment. This is something that'll take probably a billion dollars over quite a few years. And the province has been frustrated that the federal government has not been coming to the table. And he's saying, like, all we want is them to match our money. They are not even coming to the table. So we may just go this alone, which is finally, let's just start getting money out the door. And yeah, just just go alone on this. Housing is very clearly under the provincial responsibility. It is, you know, nice if the feds chip in some money, but fundamentally the buck has to stop in Victoria on this one. And this is the thing that drives me up the wall about uh, Canadian Federation is how we've structured it so that every level of government has to be part of the funding or program delivery or various things where now you're bringing, you know, two to three organizations, probably more once you account for like a lot of this stuff gets done through various nonprofits and whatnot for the uh, final front end delivery on this. It just slows everything down. It makes it much, much harder to actually assign accountability on this stuff. The BC government is more than capable of raising funds through taxation and or uh, capital borrowing on this and then just doing the thing that needs to be done. And rather than spending months or years waiting for some perfectly negotiated uh, federal spending, the promises should just spend money on the things in their jurisdiction. And ideally, the feds would spend th- money on things in their jurisdiction and we wouldn't slow everything down and add all of this uh, added complexity and obscured lines of accountability on all of this stuff. I mean, if we're going to ask the feds to spend things on their jurisdiction, as noted in this article, uh, they could start with funding on-reserve Indigenous housing because Ravi Colon has pointed out that the BC government is funding more of that than the feds, and that is very explicitly their job. Yeah, yeah, they should do that. Be- government should spend more efforts on the things that are like clearly in their jurisdiction rather than doing these messy cross-jurisdictional... And sometimes that's a necessity because 
there are policy areas where multiple areas of jurisdiction get it accounted for. But when it comes to things like housing, it's largely squarely in the provincial realm and they have the uh, taxation powers to raise the revenue to deal with it. Let, let them just go and do it. And Confederation, I think, would run smoother if we weren't expecting three-plus organizations that have to come together and hash out a funding model every time we want to do something in this country. Well, sometimes even the province can't do something when it has the money and is committed to doing it. Uh, this was a story we missed a couple weeks ago that I, we did mention this when it was announced that the province and BC Hydro had committed to put, uh, I think it was 8,000 air conditioners in people's homes, especially low-income people's uh, apartments and single-family homes to help prevent the 600 deaths that we saw in the last heat dome from happening again. And, you know, air conditioning is going to save lives in the climate we're in in the future. They have had about 2,000 applications processed and have installed about 360 of 8,000 as of August 11th, which is not not great. Not much. Uh, there's no official reasoning here for why they're sucking ass so hard on this. Uh, some community advocates are saying the whole program seemed pretty haphazard and not working very well. Uh, I saw some stories talking about the issues where landlord approval was going to be required and that was putting a significant barrier in for a number of people. Landlord approval for the kind of air conditioner that you like roll into a corner and like put a tube out a window. Uh, I heard a rumor and I can't, I don't have a verification that this is true that BC Hydro was requiring uh, licensed electricians to install these things. These things you can buy at Home Depot and plug into the wall yourself because they were afraid the old buildings would burn down if they plugged them all in and turned them on at the same time. That feels a lot more like a make work for uh, people th thing than an actual public safety issue. Whatever the reason is, they need to fix it because this is embarrassing and bad. And like the program's a great idea if you can actually get these things out. Yeah, this right here is, I think, a perfect microcosm of why a lot of people don't necessarily trust that the government is going to be able to actually fix the stuff it says it wants to fix. Like you said, these are the kind of plug into a wall outlet and you run a hose uh, pipe out to your window to... Uh, vent the excess heat uh, systems. These are not a complicated install to do, and the, the government can't even manage to do that. Well, you could probably like go on Amazon and order 8,000 of them, and it would show up, and you can just hand, you know drive around, hand them out, and it would go quicker than whatever system they've figured out to do on this. And it's wild because they've rolled out a lot of other programs in the last few years that are working. And that are effective. And so I don't know what, why, why. Anyway, 
I hope more people get air conditioners. And that story that came out was just before the heat wave that happened a couple weeks ago. And we thankfully got some cooler weather after that. But, you know, I still have, it's still been so long since I've seen rain and never missed rain so much. Maybe that's because I have a garden now. Finally, let's talk about foreign interference once more. It's been months since we talked about it, really, I think. I mean, you talk, I guess you talked about Dude. it with... Well, you talked about it with the boys in short pants when I was away a bit. Yeah, but, I guess so. About a month ago, then. Yeah. And in substantively, the news was when the Johnston report leaked or was released, and then subsequently when he uh, gave up and uh, quit. But since then, the stories have been around are we actually going to do a public inquiry and this week we've kind of gotten two stories one is that well they're they're still talking about it they're talking with some judges who might be able to do it but they still need to find like someone everyone can agree on um I guess at one point... I really feel like the government's slow rolling this one. Did, did you see this amazing part where, I guess, the new justice minister, Dominic LeBlanc, asked Chief Justice Richard Wagner who he would suggest? Because we need to involve well, the Supreme Court Canada. It would be a Canadian story without a, without a Supreme Court justice in it somehow. Although, I, I will give them this. This is a, That's at least a less cringy... You know, everyone take a shot because we've hit that point in the uh, Canadian scandal drinking game. Um, if you are going to do a inquiry, they're typically headed up by judges and asking the top judge in the country kind of what his thoughts are on good candidates at least makes more sense than, you know, dusting off the uh, old Rolodex to uh, call up Beverly McLaughlin or uh, Frank Yakabut. Yakabuchi? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Uh, who seem to be the go-to people uh, whenever there needs to be a, let's find a way to add some legitimacy and um, offload the problem onto someone else sort of thing. So it's not quite as cringy as a lot of the let's rope in a Supreme Court justice uh, stories have been. LeBlanc told CBC News, I was at my cottage in the summer. I had a nice time. The weather was nice. And I was having video meetings with Andrew Scheer, Block MP Elaine Theron, and uh, NDP MP Peter Julian. So you can see why I'm anxious to get this concluded. No, I can't. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I see the opposite. We're, exactly. Being at the lake does not exactly scream, this is a top priority. We're, we're doing everything we can to actually get someone who can then tape this on. It is very much a feeling of them slow rolling this. The other story around foreign interference is that Elizabeth May actually did manage to get to see the annex of the Johnston Report. This was the secret portion that uh, only her and... NDP leader Jagmeet Singh actually said they would go ahead and get the clearance to see Pierre Polyev and Yves-Francois Blanchet declined for, I guess they just didn't believe it was worth it. Uh, From what Elizabeth May say, that was probably an accurate assessment. Yeah, she got to read his annex and she 
says from that, I can't conclude whether his conclusions were reasonable, nor can I conclude they are unreasonable. Basically, she just got to read a longer version of the same report that had a bunch of footnotes that referred to other top secret documents that she was not allowed to look at. So, she didn't get to view any of the source material to decide if his conclusions were in fact warranted. And yeah. Yeah. So, when um, the leaders were offered this opportunity, it was very much framed as a, well, you, you really need to see this stuff because it's actually going to tell you the real story and they can make an appropriate judgment on it. And that's apparently not what actually happened. And we went back and looked at or tried to get up some of the uh, contemporaneous report on exactly what was in the offer. And it wasn't entirely clear. And I don't think we ever saw a copy of the, the formal, this is what you will get to look at if you get the uh, security clearance offer letters. But uh, it certainly doesn't feel like the uh, transparency that uh, was promised as part of this to the various other party leaders on it. Yeah, and what I find interesting about this is in some ways Elizabeth May has like more credibility than most to say this just in that I couldn't actually tell you what her strong positions were on the entire, you know, foreign interference allegations before like possibly because the greens have been so under the radar but also like they never turned it up to 11 like I wouldn't really, really yeah, I wouldn't really trust Polyev's take on it based on how they've treated the entire situation. Jugmeet Singh has been, I think, re relatively measured through most of it. Uh, he has received his security clearance, but he's still working to schedule a time to review the documents, quote, as soon as possible. I know he's been doing kind of a tour in the country. He was in Edmonton for a while trying to spend extra time there to really get to know the constituents. Uh, and I saw some like weird stories about how they're going to like adopt the Alberta NDP strategy to get a breakthrough in Alberta. Um, sure. Good luck. Maybe you can go to two seats. That would, I mean, that would be great if you can get two seats in Alberta for the NDP. But I feel like the, if the NDP tried to pull the uh, Alberta NDP strategy, whatever they gain in Alberta, they'd end up losing elsewhere. I, yeah. We don't need to. You can't just scale up a provincial strategy to a country the size of Canada. We are too regional to make that work. For sure. I think the thing was mostly just to try to appeal to some, like, people who voted NDP provincially in Calgary and Edmonton to do so federally. But, I th like, the broader issue here, coming back to the Johnston report, is May got to see an annex that didn't include anything substantive and yeah that that is something for her to come out and just say well i wasted a whole bunch of my time <laughs> she has asked the privy council office for permission to see more so she can actually make a more informed judgment now unfortunately we're not going to get like it's still going to be top secret so she's still our proxy to decide whether or not anything Johnston said was reasonable or not, but... really just need an entry to actually settle this. Yeah. Anyway, it's very fun to have someone put out a report and say, hey, I have a super secret annex, and if you read that, you'll be convinced of how reasonable I am. And then the first person who gets to read it says, 
Uh, what the hell was that? I wasn't convinced of anything. <laughs> cool. So yeah, we did. I mean, I think the the bitter takeaway for that is the uh, yeah the full Johnson report is not any more convincing than the uh, abridged for public release version. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.